Welcome back to the Move Podcast. We are going to take a look at the first six stages of an already exciting 2023 Vuelta España. I'm JB Hager. I'm joined by Spencer Martin and Johan Bernil. And uh, we're going to break down all these stages, uh, the first six stages, and a lot of excitement. We, we anticipated that this was going to be an exciting Vuelta, and it's proven to be true. And also, a quick note, stick around to the end of this show. We're going to be doing Ventum trivia. We're going to be giving away, at the end of this Vuelta, a brand new Ventum GS1 gravel bike. All you have to do is participate. doesn't cost you anything. Uh, just listen to the trivia questions, email in your answers, and after each of uh, our shows, they're going to draw one winner. And then from those, they're going to draw one winner at the very end of the Vuelta for a brand new GS1. Okay, so stick around for that at the end. Uh, the way we're going to handle this, we're going to go through stage by stage. Spencer, why don't you queue up the quick uh, and dirty of how things went down? And then uh, we'll get your both of your reactions on uh, um, what you thought from that stage. Let's, of course, start with stage one. Yeah, well, thanks, JB. We yeah, we just watched stage six, the most exciting stage, but we'll start back at one. The team time trial feels like that was five years ago at this point <laughs> in Barcelona. Um, they they did not correctly calculate the the sunset time. Some clouds came in. Some teams raced in the daylight. Some raced like in legitimate pitch black after dark conditions. That helped DSM, who rolled off second, I think like two hours before Quick Step, which was the last team. So DSM races a little bit of rain, but they can see. They win the stage at the time. They probably don't even think anything of it. Um, they, one of their young Italian riders rolls across the line first. He has the first leader's jersey of the race. Um, Quick step puts in a good ride. Yumbo, um, Jonas Vinegard had a flat, so they had to sit up and wait for him. I would say the second half where they didn't have a flat, great time. Like looks fantastic, but they did lose um, some significant time because of that. Stage two was another bizarre, um, trouble-filled day. It started outside of Barcelona. Went into Barcelona. There was some rain, uh, flooding at the finish. There was barriers floating away. It was a bit chaotic. It was hard to track it all um, really as it was happening. They neutralized the last 9K of the stage. So once the GC riders got there, they sat up, um, let a small group contest the stage. Andreas Krohn from uh, Lado Des, Destiny, DTSY, whatever we're calling that, <laughs> wins the stage. Good. It was a good win, but um, it had a bit of an exhibition field because you had all the good riders sitting up. Primoz Roglic crashed. That, that was another significant thing. He crashed um, on a white line in the rain. Stage three, and jump in, guys, if you want to say anything about these stages, but I think we'll just get through to six and then kind of talk about the big picture stuff. But stage three was an oddly early mountain stage. We got out of Barcelona, finally, out of the rain, some better weather. Um, tough mountain stage, tough mountain finish in, in Andorra. Um, I, I don't know if I've ever seen a mountain stage this tough this early in a Grand Tour. Yumbo uh, kind of pulls it back. I thought Yumbo looked a little rusty. They didn't quite know how to handle their dual leaders of Vin Vindigo Roglic on the climb. They were chasing each other for, for a little bit, closing down moves. Sepp Kuss was out the front for a little bit. It, looking back, they were, they were, it was fine. But at the time it's like, what's going on with Yumbo? Some problems here. Remco having a pole kind of beats them at their own game though. Just sits until the last 30 seconds of the st stage blows everybody away. Wins Jonas Vindigo second. He actually, but Remco opened up a like a time gap of a second. So he got the 10 second time bonus for winning plus that second. Um, at that point, he's built up a pretty significant lead, you know, like a 30 plus second lead on 
the Yumbo duo of Roglic and Vindigo, even more on the UAE guys of Almeida and Juan Ayuso because they had an even worse stage one team time trial. So it's looking pretty good there. Um, and the other note is Enric Moss was looking fantastic up to that point. The only rider really close to Rimco. And then stage four and five were almost identical sprint stages. And we call them sprint stages. It is important to note they were incredibly hard, like seven to 8,000 feet of climbing, um, 28 mile an hour average. So just brutal stages. Caden Groves from Alpeson, uh, Alpeson Deconic, which I think they are now, wins both stages. Uh, perfect lead out from Alpeson. I mean, like picture perfect. I would say the big note is like sub 10 second sprints. They, that's what they were doing at the tour. They were getting Phillipson so close to the finish line. He's barely in the wind. Um, Groves almost kind of looks like Phillipson on the bike. So it, it really was just deja vu back to the Tour de France where um, Alpeson clearly has a formula for these hard sprint stages and was executing perfectly. Stage five, Filippo Ghana was oddly the best sprinter that wasn't Caden Groves. Um, <laughs> I thought he was sprinting just as fast as Groves, but Groves had a better lead out. Ghana was in the wind for like 25, the last 25 seconds. Groves was in the wind for the last six seconds. I thought that was the difference, but pretty good result there from Ghana. I thought that was something um, we could talk about as far as the future goes, if he could really be a sprinter. Stage six today, another really hard summit finish. Um, two summit finishes in the first six, six stages, not something we normally see. We didn't wasn't televised, but the beginning of the stage blew up, you know, like a strong 40 rider move goes clear. Multiple guys close in the GC, Sepp Kuss, Lenny Martinez, Mikel Landa, Hugh Carthy, um, Remco Evanipol dropped. Uh, we didn't see any of this. We just had to hear about it, but he was like caught out in crosswinds in the second group. Quick step had to, his quick step team had to pull him back to the front. And then they had this huge job of like containing this six, seven, eight minute gap up to Sepp Kuss. They pull it back to around three minutes by the final climb, which was tough. I think it was 11K long at 8% steepness. Primoz Roglic attacks. Sepkus attacks up front, goes away for the stage win. Primoz Roglic attacks in the peloton. Jonas bridges up to him with Enric Moss. And Remco is dropped fairly early on the climb. He looked in big trouble, but it was kind of the classic Remco where he lost 30 seconds right away. Looks fantastic after he loses that, just kind of holds the 32nd. Gap finishes 32 seconds back. Now Sepkus is second. Lenny Martinez is first. And then the big favorites are, you know, two, three minutes back from them. We can talk about, you know, where we go from here. But that's really the wrap up of how we've gotten to where we are at stage six. Great. I know, Johan, you're going to want, probably going to want to go back to stage one. You were probably watching it in the dark and the rain and going, what the hell? I can hear you. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, on the one side, on the. Yes, uh, you know, it was, it, it really looked really bad. On the other side, um, you know, it happens in Spain that all of a sudden these storms come in and like an hour, normally as of today, it's still clear until light until 9, 9.15. So I guess that, that was, that's what, that was the calculation. But if, it, if the storm comes in then all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's pitch black, which is what happened. Um so obviously the riders were uh, really unhappy, uh, not about the rain because you, you can't plan for that, but about the timing of that time trial. And I think that, you know, they, there's no gain to, to, I mean, I don't know what the influence of Barcelona, the city of Barcelona was, because obviously I think Barcelona paid good money to have these two first stages. And so we have to kind of know 
what they wanted, right? Uh, but it makes no sense to make a finish at nine o'clock at night. Uh, and, and especially having this huge time gap between the first teams, because I think the race started around 6, 6.30. Uh, and, and, you know, leaving four minutes in between every team on a 15-kilometer parkour is, is way too much. You know, they could have started at the same time and leaving two minutes in between each team. And uh, everything would have been fine. Of course, you know, these things are easy to say afterwards. Um, second stage was also a bit chaotic. Uh, but I personally think that um, the the Vuelta there, uh, they kind of gave in because they can't, they knew that the first day they messed up and it was kind of a concession. Um, to me, the rule or the, the measure that was taken on stage two doesn't make much sense because, you know, are you going to have to cancel all downhills then when it starts raining? Um, so... Uh, I, I didn't really think that that was the right thing to do. Uh, I did see the images that there was big wind and leaves and branches on the on the road. So, you know, they were rightfully concerned, the riders, about the safety. Um, but I think those, those decisions made last minute are not always the good decisions because if you can't, if you, if you decide that you're going to take the time at 9K to go, then it makes no sense to have the bonifications at 3k to go and the bonifications at the finish because that's also time right it's it, it there was there was 16 seconds to be gained there or lost so um the positive thing i take away from these two first days is that uh the riders seem to have found a solidarity and are being heard uh which uh it's been a long time since this happened and, and so i would definitely want to see a continuation of that, that they're part of the discussions when, when important decisions are being made. So um, let's say the first two days didn't look really professional. Uh, and, you know, you can say, yeah, you know, it's Spain, it's the Spanish. Let's not forget, you know, this, the Tour of Spain is owned by ASO. So it's, it's, it should not happen, these kind of things. You know, I saw images, for example, of um, a UCI commissaire on the top of uh, the climb of Montjuic, which was the, the second stage, the last climb. And he was asking spectators to look on their mobile phones uh, to have the order of the, the way they got over the, the last climb to attribute the, the bonifications. So, you know, it, it, they were they, they they didn't know what they were doing, basically. Uh, and, and so, you know, the, the guys were obviously the, the, the riders were upset. Also, Evenepoel was upset on stage one, uh, and then on stage three, of course, when we saw that he crashed, that this is another thing that happened uh, in terms of safety. Uh, he won the stage, but for some reason, there was only 50 meters after the stage that the riders could basically roll out, and they had to break, and he had no time to break. It could, but, have, been, uh, it could have ended his, his tour, that yeah, crash. Yeah, that, that, and that could definitely have been avoided. I've spoken to people who were actually there. You know, our our we do member, our we do teammate uh, Victor Hugo Pena uh, was there, and he said, "Man, there was no way. He, he had nowhere to go. You know, he came a lot faster than they, they anticipated. You know, he came probably at forty k an hour, where normally on top of a mountain stage you come twenty five kilometers per hour. So the Vuelta probably has thought, yeah, well, you know, they, we don't need that much of of a of a neutral zone after the finish." Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, the start was a bit unprofessional, in my opinion. But 
you know, listen, it's it's as, as Spencer said, you know, it seems already long ago. And in the meantime, we have stage three, we had two sprints and we had stage six. And we've forgotten about this already, right? It's uh, the Vuelta is full on now. And uh, I'm expecting uh, a lot more fireworks to come in the next stages. I guess the the backstory to that stage three incident is, and I I, need, I haven't listened to the interview yet. I need to listen to it. But he was on the Lantern Recycling Podcast. And they goaded him into doing the celebration that he did, which made him take his hands off the bar. And then that's why his, like, he really needed to be breaking the moment he came over the line if he wanted to not hit all the people standing there. But I guess the podcast goaded him into that celebration. And then that's why he did it. And then that's why he crashed. It's like really a bizarre backstory to to how that happened. I didn't know that. What I did see, however... Uh, is uh, on on Evanepoel's own YouTube channel. I did see this, um, you know, the way he prepared for stage three. You know, he re- he went to Andorra, he reconned uh, those two last climbs. That's the, the the famous day that he did, I don't know, 240 kilometers or something, eight hours on the bike. Um, but the way he has prepared that stage, I mean, he knew what he was doing and uh, he had this stage already in mind, you know. Although before the stage, he said, yeah, I'm going to see and hopefully I don't lose time. But man, he was he, he had that stage uh, marked as one of the stages that he could win. One of the things I, I this is more for Johan. I, I love seeing Remco being vocal and critical, you know, <laughs> and and you as you mentioned, the, the team seem more united. And we've I think we've said in recent shows there isn't like a boss of the Peloton like there has been in the past. Could Remco be that guy? Because he's not afraid to say whatever he wants. I actually, it makes me a bigger fan of him. Yeah. I, and, I, and, and that part, second part of that, Johan, is does that come back to, to, to hurt you? This, these are both, you know, two big ASO races. Is it, if you're vocal and critical, does it come back to hurt you? You know, at some point, yes. Uh, but Remco's Remco. He will, he will always be like this. Uh, you know, he has a big temper and, and that's also what makes him so good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, to answer your question about being the boss, the patron of the of the the peloton, I think those times are over. That's not anymore. I mean, nowadays, and and this is not just in sport; it's in society. You know, the young generation, you know, when they're when they reach a certain age, 18, 19, 20, that's it. They know what they want. They know how they want to do it, and that, that they're going to go. You know, and uh back in the days i mean when when you started as a young professional you came in the bunch and you were like like hiding you know and please let me not touch this guy or you know let me not make crash i mean i remember my first year professional in liege baston liege uh i was on a really small team and you know uh we, and we could part- we were allowed to participate because our sponsor was based in liege i remember i you know in the middle of the race i I don't know what I did. I did something wrong. And I, I ran into the back wheel of Moreno Argentine, who was the world champion. And, uh, and so, you know, he, we both crashed. (laughs) (laughs) He won, he won the race, but, uh, man, I, I got almost killed by him and by, by the rest of the peloton is, ah, you stupid young guy, you know, what are you doing? Nowadays, that's not the case anymore. First of all, all these riders are better at riding their bike because in my time, when I got in the in the in the pro peloton, I, you had to learn everything because I had never been racing at that level with so many riders, you know, at, at those speeds. Um, 
But um, to come back on Remco, I mean, he's obviously not afraid to to voice his opinion, um, which I think is good uh, when he's right. And then, you know, sometimes he's not right. Sometimes it's also, you know, he's frustrated and and uh, sometimes there needs to be somebody next to him who kind of calm, calms him down. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's the way he is. Uh, you, you like him or you don't like him. Uh, but I think that's also the attractive part of, of, of a champion. You know, he has, he definitely has charisma. Uh, he has a personality and, uh, the sport obviously needs people like personalities, you know? Uh, so I, I like it. I like it. Uh, he's, you know, I'm pretty sure, and I'm pretty sure he's controlling himself because if you would let him do what he, what, what, what he likes to do, uh, that it would be a lot worse, a lot worse. You know, he's used to, um, let's not forget he comes from football, you know, soccer over here. Uh, okay. to those victory celebrations and uh, where it's actually seen as, that cycling is not like this. Cycling doesn't like that. You know, cycling likes humble, nice guys. You know, they win and then they're friendly to everybody. Um, and Remco is tra still transitioning into becoming one of those moderate guys let me ask both of you this uh when we saw remco on stage three with that impressive uh mountaintop sprint finish it was amazing were you guys thinking about next year's tour de france be honest yeah <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, I, I started getting tons of emails. My phone started blowing up. They're going, the next year's tour is going to be amazing. Because yeah, well, you, you can't judge on one stage and on one, I know. one stage. <laughs> but uh, it's clear that, and Remco already said it before also, you know, after the tour, when, you know, everybody was talking about the, the watts per kilo of, of Vingegaard, for example, in Pogacar. He said publicly, he said, yeah, I've already done those numbers too, you know, mm -hmm. which obviously he knows he can do that. Uh, it's just a matter of being able to do it day after day after day. Uh, but I don't think it's, I mean, it's not a surprise. Uh, also, because I think that Jonas Vingegaard is not at the level of the tour yet. It's, it's to be seen if he can get back to the, that level in the Vuelta. And and apparently Primoz Roglic was... Uh, kind of cautious because he crashed the day before, but still what he did in that last 500 meters was impressive. You know, the, the, you know, Pogacar would have been beaten too, uh, by, by, by Ramco, I think that day. So, um, so yeah, I did, I, obviously I did think, well, you know, listen, it's the first time he's against both and he beats them. So, Hey, you know, he's, he's up there, you know, yeah, That's of course, you know, today we saw a different different game, but um, if we think about the future uh, of Grand Tours, Remco Evenepoel always has to be part of the, this discussion and be taken into account because he's just such a quality rider. Well, JB, first of all, I've been thinking about next year's tour since the 2019 San Sebastian when <laughs> I saw Remco Evenepoel right off the front. And I was like, you know, this could be interesting in the coming years. But I do think everything we've been talking about, I think it's connected. I also like Remco now. I, I, I don't know. I just something about the first few stages, him being so outspoken, it has kind of won me over. But Johan and I have been talking about this just personally. 
I think it's not good for this race. You know, as we saw him so good on stage three, like it just shows that he can be so good at climbing and so explosive in these finishes. I do think the emotional outbursts and, you know, the sprint yesterday when he got the time bonuses, I, I personally think that was a good call in that situation, but he does waste a lot of energy. And then today you're like, well, what happened? Why aren't you as strong as you were on stage three? To me, that's the big bridge he still has to golf or the big gap he still has to bridge where it's like, well, why were you so unbelievably good on stage three? And then stage six, are you wearing down already? Or was that just a bad moment? You know, that's the one thing with Remco that I think the outspokenness and emotional outbursts kind of cost him. Um, It's a three week long race. I mean, how many times do you guys ever remember Lance Armstrong screaming at stage finishes after like stage three or four of a race? Like pretty people who win grand tours are pretty even keel personalities during the race. Yeah. You have to, you have to stay calm. You just have to focus on, you know, the three weeks. It's a math exercise, basically, you know, you have to make sure that you save energy and take a little bit of time here and there. Um, so listen for the fans, it's great to have Ramco in the pool, you know, and I'm making these gestures after the finish and, uh, and a lot of people also don't like it, but listen, if you are like that and then you back it up once in a while with an amazing performance, you're God, you know, you're, 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 it's, 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 he's an attractive, attractive figure for cycling. Okay. As Spencer already mentioned, it was the Caden Grove show, uh, on uh, stage four and five, but I also noted something that you mentioned and we can get Johan's thoughts on it. As you saw Caden Groves being launched off perfectly, Filippo Ghana, was starting to gain, didn't have enough time, but was gaining on him. And as we all know, he's Filippo Ghana is currently one of, if not the best time trialists. I was like, wow, what speed. Uh, so what was your takeaway from that? I was, well, I was, I was, first of all, I was surprised to see him there. I mean, I hadn't thought of him, uh, but you know, a few things to take into account, you know, the best sprinter, the, the really fast sprinters are not in this Vuelta. Neither are the teams with the sprint trains. So obviously it's diff- it's different at the end. Um, then also Spencer and I talked about this. You know, Filippo Ghana a few weeks ago won a stage in the in a in a stage race in Belgium, Tour de Wallonie, uh, in a bunch sprint. You know, and there was there were some some fast guys there. Arnaud Lee was there and some other guys. So uh, you know, if you have that kind of power, and obviously. You know, listen, if, if Filippo Ghana, he, he broke the world hour record. Uh, he rode almost 57 kilometers per hour, I guess. Uh, so he can ride at 60K an hour. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, if the really if the really fast guys and the big sprint trains are not there, he has that speed. Um, so it's to be seen now if, you know, I, th- I think if we, in a few other stages, in, in a few other bunch sprints, he's going to try again especially because it looks like Team Ineos is not on the top of their game with their GC guys. So I think Filippo Ghana will, uh, like tomorrow, for example, tomorrow's a bunch print normally. We'll see him try again, I think. Hmm. He kind of reminded me of Jonathan Milan. If you go back to the Giro, I think they're both, they're both pursuiters on the track. I think they were teammates on the team pursuit. Yeah. Just kind of these big hulking guys who they don't have like the pickup that, you know, that a Caden Groves or Phillips would have, but once they're up to speed, 
you know, like trucks, they're just moving so fast because they're putting out so much power. And like the thing about Ghana is he can be his, his own positioning man, his own lead out man. Like he just occupies the role of three riders because he can do, he can just put out so much power in the last four or five K, but yeah. Like, yeah. is he going to be beating? I don't know if he really could ever be mixing it up in the most competitive bunch sprints. Just why someone that talented and who's not a full-time sprinter. Like, I just don't think no. he would think that's worth his time, but if it was a harder sprint, you know, more reduced finish, I think he could have a bit like a big career, just poaching stages like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, normally he will always lose against the guys in this, like Caden Groves, you know, who have yeah. you know, guys and, only have to come out the last 10, 15 seconds, right? Um, whereas Ghana has to do already all the work to get in position and then finally accelerate in the end. But, uh, but you know, in this Vuelta, I think, um, I mean, he knows that the sprint, the, the real sprinters, I mean, with all respect to Caden Groves, uh, he is one of the top sprinters, but let's say, you know, there's not the Grunewagens and the Jakobsen and, and Philipsen and Merlier and, pure sprinters right um but yeah i mean it's it's i'm curious to see he's i think he's definitely going to be up there a few more times all right let's get into the the fireworks stage that we saw today stage six uh we'll start with you johan um obviously remco and uh, wanted to give away the red jersey maybe you know doesn't have the strongest support team probably a smart move Maybe you can elaborate on the art of giving away the jersey. And if you thought they did an appropriate job of that today, because there were times oh, oh. when it's like too much time. What's going on here? Is he in trouble? What's, you know, it was one, a big gap. Uh, one thing is trying to give away the jersey, JB. But today, they, it's not like they gave away the jersey. They lost the jersey. Because you can never, ever, ever let a 40 rider breakaway go. 40 riders. I mean, that's madness. There's no way of controlling that. No way. You know, and luckily for them, they got help from Movistar and Ineos because otherwise this group is gone. And, you know, guys like Sepkus, you know, if he gets instead of, because at some point they were seven minutes, but at some point, if he gets more than 10 minutes, where is he going to get, if then if Sepkus starts to go for it, how is he going to get 10 minutes back on Sepkus? You know, in, in the mountain stages, if you're all, instead of, being up there to do the, the work, if Sepkus saves himself, he could win the Vuelta, you know? So the seven minutes was already, in my opinion, uh, like, wow, I, when I turned it on, it was seven minutes. I said, man, this, this is not good, you know? This is not good at all. Um, especially because there was four, four Jumbo Visma. It's not like just 40 riders. On top of that, four guys of Jumbo Visma. Easier said than done that, you know, not letting it go away. Sometimes you have no other choice because, you know, and those 40 riders didn't get away altogether, right? It was seven, 10, this. And before you know, you're out of position and there's all these guys in front and they're gone, right? Uh, and then on top of that, apparently Remco got caught in the crosswinds in the second part of the peloton. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, turned out fine because at the end they they didn't they, they they came back to two minutes right or two 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 minutes something uh which for the gc is okay um but um i think today uh they did what they could there's rumors also that within the team sudal quickstep there's a there's a some, some kind of virus 
uh, not just there, it's a few other teams too. And so they lost one rider uh, this morning already, Bajoli. Um, apparently, the other guy, Louis Vervaque, also had problems in a, a few stages. Although the day he did, a, he did a great stage. Um, but uh, but yeah, sometimes you just have to manage the losses. Uh, giving the jersey away was the plan, but I I'm pretty sure the plan was not to have 40 riders away and have guys like. Sepkus, Lenny Martinez, Mark Soler, uh, Butrago, uh, Waldpools. I mean, all these, I mean, if at some point they get no help, they would have blown up their team and that, that breakaway could have gotten 10 minutes, which then the Vuelta starts to be in danger. Uh, then the question to be asked is, well, would Jumbo Visma be okay with that? Because... Okay, Sepkus is up there, but he has never been in a position to be the leader. And so there's also no guarantee that he would be able to maintain that high level during all the stages of the Vuelta. And, so, and with two two grand tours under his belt already, he, he yeah. could fall apart. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. He will fall apart, though. I mean, <laughs> I'm so impressed with Sepkus. It is, I mean, when I heard at the end of the tour or just after the tour that they were thinking of sending Sepkus to the Vuelta. I said, man, these guys are crazy. That's like, you know, it's like rider exploitation, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but but, uh, I mean, listen, they, they know what they're doing. And uh, before making the decision, I'm pretty sure that they know that Sepkus was ready. And um, yeah, I mean, the, the form he's in now, Winning the stage, but also the job he can do for his two leaders will be impre- it will be incredible. It's going to be crucial again. Johan, I'll admit I had the same trepidation. I was like, man, are they really okay with Koos getting ten minutes? But I do think at the end of the day, Yumbo just it was perfect. They just worked over. You, you, I think you could say, well, what's the point of coming into the race with three potential GC guys? Does that really help you? I mean, you just hear this question all the time, like. It's just man, strongest man versus strongest man, right? That's what wins. But today's show, no, because if Yumbo can get Koos up there with teammates driving the pace, that puts Quickstep in such a hard position. Yeah. And Quickstep even tried, they had riders in that move, which I guess in theory would allow them to, to bluff perhaps like, well, we're not going to work. We have riders up the road. I still don't quite understand why they did that because then Yumbo's like, well, we don't care. Like those aren't GC guys. Who cares? Oh. Sep Koos is getting time. Yeah, I mean the two riders, the two riders that of Sudak Quickstep that were in the break was uh, Catanio and uh, and Louis Vervaque, and and they both came back at different moments. Uh, and I think actually, you know, it, at first I said, hey, you know what, these guys need to come back straight away to start riding on the flats or on the you know before the climb. But I, I think finally they made the right decision because um, I think I don't know who came back first, but when Louis Vervaque came back. He did an incredible job, incredible job setting the tempo. And it was already really hard before that climb. And he really reduced the difference uh, with, uh, with with the first group. Like, let's not forget, you know, I mean, the front group, you know, there were 40 riders, but the guys that have been working very hard to increase the gap, at some point they will be done. And that's going to be in the end when, when, uh, when you know the climb started and and the guys from Sudak Quickstep didn't work at all in the front so they came back to the peloton and they were fresh to work so i think that kind of that was not that was not a bad move um 
Now, I think, you know, in, in, on the other hand, for example, Ineos, uh, they had one guy in there. Uh, now, after today's stage, I think it's safe to say that they're not going to win this Vuelta. Uh, they're going to maybe try to for the podium, and even that is going to be extremely difficult. So they should have had a few guys in there, and uh, uh, Movistar, and they had one guy in there, I guess, or two guys. Um, yeah, two guys, probably. Um, but yeah, I mean... Today was not a good day for for Sudar Quickstep. Uh, finally, in the end, they saved the day. Uh, and on top of that, even if Remco had a bad day today, he's still ahead of Vingegaard and Roglic. Let's not forget, he's still ahead of them. But they have eliminated. They, I, I thought they kind of dug themselves in a hole in that first weekend. I mean, those were pretty significant time gaps, like over forty seconds for Roglic. Now they're equal, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So not ideal for a quick step. I mean, they need it's to be good. building a gap right now. Wait for the race. I mean, you know, uh, I was surprised to see Remco getting dropped. I mean, it was with 4K to go, he got in trouble. And especially when Roglic went uh, and then Vingegaard and Moss bridged up. But And I was worried, you know, because he was going backwards pretty fast. But the guy recovered. And he made time back in the end. Uh, he could he could accelerate again the last two kilometers. And you know, if it's if on a bad day you lose thirty two seconds, it's not a it's not a really bad day. He could have lost a lot more. Yeah, but what happens when we're stage thirteen and yeah, you okay, have yeah, sure. two HC climbs? To me, yeah. and my concern is that he didn't crack. I thought he actually looked pretty good today. Like, is he just, is that just who he is? He's not quite as good of a climber as Roglic and Vindigo? Or no, no, do you think not. he just had a bad moment? No, he's not He's not as good as a climber, especially not as, as Jonas. Jonas is the best climber in the world right now. So he, Remco is not as good, especially on multi-climbs multi per, per stage and, and, and longer, in the, longer in the race. But um, he's still a pretty good rider. <laughs> should, wait, should we say something about this race leader, Lenny Martinez, 20 years old. Johan, you said they saved the tour or saved the Volta. Are we sure he's coming back? Like, who is this guy? Like, how good is he? Well, he's good. Uh, but I mean, he's, he's super talented, super talented. Um, you know, great, great genetics. You know, the son, his, his, his dad was Olympic champion. Yeah. His granddad was the pocket of Jersey, won the pocket of Jersey in the tour was third in the world championships behind Eddie Merckx and Raymond Pulidor, his granddad. So, you know, it's a family, a family occupation cycling, you know, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, first grand tour, I mean, he can stay there for a while, but for example, in the time trial, he's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna lose 25 kilometers. He's gonna lose two minutes. Yeah, you just brought up you just brought up something interesting, Johan. I it's funny how you were just talking about his his uh family history, which we don't we don't talk about like literally the genetics. Mm -hmm. But but we do it in horse racing all the time. <laughs> you know, it's like it's just interesting to me that we don't talk hey, about at, this bloodline of great cyclists. Yeah. His dad world champion, his 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 granddad from his mother's side. 
you know, multi, I mean, I don't know how many, how many races. I mean, they always talk about Ramon Pulidor, the eternal second, but I think the guy won like a hundred and something races. Yeah. Pretty good, pretty good racer. You could say, <laughs> you know, he, he won, he was second in the tour three or four times. So, um, you know, that those genetics are incredible because that that's like two big champions, you know? Yeah. Uh, but it's not a guarantee because at the same time, you know, Matthew van der Poel has a brother, David. They're started racing more or less together. And, and, you know, he's, he's a professional cyclist, but he's nowhere near mm. the quality of, of Matthew. Well, and also like, who are Jonas's parents, right? Like, how does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> it's just interesting to me. I know that was a total tangent there, but it was just an interesting observation. One other thing, I know I'm jumping around, but I want to come back to Sepp Kuss. Obviously, they accomplished two big goals. They they put Remco in trouble with Sepp Kuss being up there, and he got a stage win, which is great because we all love this workhorse, Sepp Kuss. Do, I don't, it didn't seem like he knew that he could be in red, in the red jersey, because he was high-fiving. Uh, and, and in the last <laughs> K, he looked like he was on a weekend joyride, but Aww. still still going fast. He, but, I think it was more of a suffer phase. Than, I mean, obviously, there's this moment where you realize you're going to win. And you you have the suffer phase and there's this smile coming into it. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't mean they're going any slower. On the contrary, maybe they're even going faster with the euphoric, you know, injection of adrenaline adrenaline. But um, but yeah, I mean the high fiving at the end, I, I, listen, it didn't cost him uh the red jersey. Uh he's still seven seconds behind, but he probably didn't know he was that close. That's what I was saying. Like, I don't yeah, think he got what... this. It wasn't on the radar it, or no one was saying it to him yeah, yeah. or it wasn't well, what's interesting about it is it's like it actually worked out really well for his team because Yumbo doesn't want that jersey you know I wonder if Pluge is in his ear like hey just uh give uh, some high fives here at the end because <laughs> if they get the jersey that that's a bit of a drag for them now they have to defend this thing they really Good don't point. want to be defending it for Sepp Kuss. the perfect scenario with Mar Lenny Martinez now having it group on it Group is going to hold on to this thing for dear life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and tomorrow's a flat stage. So initially, uh, Group FDG would have to, you know, set the tempo and the sprinters teams are going to come in. And then the stage after the two stages after are also two stages that are still suitable for Mar Martinez. But I, I think normally, you know, Lenny Martinez, he's going to try to hang on to that Jersey as long as he can. And then at some point he will crack and he may still remain close to top five, but you know, it's going to end at some point and, and it's logical. You know, the guy, um, he is a pure climber. There's, you know, he, it, that's the only thing that he's really good in. Other than that on the flats, he's suffering. Of course, he will have a team around him and time trialing is not his thing. So I, I don't think, I don't think they should be worried about Lenny Martinez, at least not for now. Um, well, what about, so let's pencil in Coos for a two minute loss. I think you're, I think you're right there. Let's say Coos and Martinez lose two minutes in the time trial. He's currently, Coos is currently 239, something like that ahead of Evanapol. Is Evanapol a better climber than Sepp Coos? Like, where's he getting the rest of that time back? Well, uh, you know, Sepp Coos at some point is going to have to be on, on, on duty and that's going to be the Tourmalet stage. He's going to be the, 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 the guy who normally prepares 
the big assault of of Vingegaard and Roglic on the Tourmalet. So, so he'll be peeling off, and that's well, where the no, time will come. I mean, we've we've seen it. I know. Oh, yeah, he can peel we've off, and then he comes right back. They like you know they they do it, and then all of a sudden they 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 recover for one two minutes, and they get going again. Yeah. So, but um, but yeah, I mean, he he he's still he's still. Good. I'm a little bit more skeptical for Sepkus because it's his third Grand Tour, so it, the energy is going to have to end sometime, right? I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure that he will he will still be focusing on being there, those crucial mountain stages to do what he's one of the best in the world, arguably the best in the world in, uh, and that's his job, and that's also his 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 value. You know, I mean, Sepkus's value is not going to go up because he's finishing. Fifth or sixth in the Vuelta, right, right. Um, I think. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and then Johan. So this, like, so we're talking about Lenny Martinez, Sepkus, also like Juan Ayuso, secretly great day. Like that was unbelievable, and he's also twenty years old, like Lenny Martinez. <laughs> that really stuck out to me. And then your guy, your your countryman, Sign Unterbrooks, really an impressive day. Finished just a few seconds I'll, I'll behind. What's his name? Is it Cyan Utabrooks? Utabrooks? I've never seen a JTD consecutive <laughs> in someone's name. It has to be the only time this has ever happened. Ian Utabrooks. Utabrooks. Ian Utabrooks. How does that first name? Are you just, you're saying? Oh, it's Kian. It's Kian. Okay, Kian. Kian, yeah. <laughs> Not a Belgian name, by the way. Utabrooks. Utabrooks is different. That's literally translated as out of the pants. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that sounds more Dutch. Oitebroeks. Oit is out. Oit de Broek is out of his pants. <laughs> you got to know more. Whatever about is out of his pants, I don't know, but it's out. Of- <laughs> huh. All right. Were there anything? I mean, I know one other thing you want to talk about. I just don't want to make sure I exclude anything else that might have been in your notes, Spencer. I know Johan wanted to address the Remco Ineos rumor again. Uh, we mm-hmm. talked about it on the previous show. Was there anything else before we get to that that you had, Spencer? I was just wanted to ask you guys about so Sepkus, we obviously talked about. Looks fantastic. Great day. Roglic Vindigo. What do what do we think about that? I was personally pretty impressed with Primos today. That that was a strong attack coming off a crash on stage two. Um, mm-hmm. I thought he looked a little beat up on stage three. And then Jonas allegedly has, let's just say it, diarrhea and has had to stop on a stage to, to relieve himself. You hear that you're not thinking, man, this guy's going to do great. And he looks unbothered. And and we're saying he's not even at his tour level yet. I wonder if he could win this race without ever reaching his tour level. Like well, if he just keeps before, it. Spencer, if, if Jonas is 90% of the tour level, he's still good enough to win a Vuelta. Um, and it looks like his main rival is going to be Primos, you know, yeah. we saw today. Uh, personally, I thought Roglic looked a bit better than, than Jonas today. Ro- Jonas was there, but he was suffering. He, had he couldn't suffering. come through. Yeah. Uh, but still, you know, he was there. First of all, he bridged up uh, to, to Primos when he attacked with Enric Mas. We didn't see that. I don't know if it was Jonas bridging up or if it was Enric Mas bridging up with Jonas on the wheel. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, those two, those two, I mean, Jumbo Visma is amazing. It's scary. 
it's scary. You know, I mean, like today, I mean, they have they have Roglic and and Vingegaard and Kelderman and Gesink in the main group, and they have four riders up front. It's like, what are we gonna do here to beat these guys? You know, it's like <laughs> uh, they're they're impressively strong. Um, but I think for the moment it's 50-50, those guys. Uh, personally, I think that Vingegaard is going to improve during the Vuelta because he he cannot have had an ideal lead up, you know, because all the all the fest- festivities in Denmark and needing to relax mentally also. Uh, but he obviously kept fit um, and and looks like you know. It's not the Vingegaard we saw dominantly in the in the tour, but he's in the top three right now of the strongest riders. So uh, it it'll only get better. Well, and let's remember, Vindigo at the beginning of the tour was getting distanced. You know, he was not the dominant guy we saw at the end of the race. Like he really rode into that tour. He was getting, I wouldn't say drop, but he was falling behind Tade in those early. Like you wouldn't go back to Puy de Dome and say, "Ooh, this guy." unbeatable well, form he kind of had to ride into five, that on stage five he wasn't get distanced he dropped he took a minute on, on pogacar that day pretty but then people were saying oh pogacar there was kind of like rolling out of like oh i don't know if he can really do this and then it kind of looked like the tide was turning he rides in really well and then he's clearly i agree with you he was suffering he was not stronger than roglic roglic just rode moss off his wheel and enric moss who looks incredible like he just popped right off that wheel and Jonas could hold it. You know, that's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. No, but you know, you're, you're right. Those young, I mean, like, like Juan Ayuso and, and, and Kian Oetebrooks, they finished this stage really strong. You know, they, they just lost a few seconds on, uh, on the two biggest favorites. So. Yeah, I don't I mean, think they're going anywhere. Martinez I don't think they're going to fall apart. Also. Sorry. I don't think they're going to fall apart. You know, I think oh, they're no, going to no, be no, there the no, whole no. race. No. Um, listen, Lenny Martinez and Kian Brooks is their first Grand Tour. They're discovering, and they're 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 here to see how far they can go. But let me tell you, if you hear the post race interviews of Juan Ayuso and his facial expression, <laughs> there's no doubt in his mind that this guy is here to race and to be up there with the best. You know, and he the, the way he talk, it's so mature, it's so impressive to see a young guy like this. It's also only his second Grand Tour, you know. And uh, to see to see him so confident, uh, yeah, it's not it's not it's not an exception anymore. I mean, if you look at the at the at the top ten, we should I don't know. I think there's there's four twenty year olds in the top ten. It's almost the norm now, and <laughs> then people like Garen Thomas are suffering. And the yeah. thing with Ayuso, I mean, he's got to be the only person in the history of the sport to be twenty years old and never having finished off a podium of a Grand Tour. I mean, that is unbelievable. Yeah. And also, if you hear Seth Kuss's interview after the after the stage, he says, you know, like he's, you know, he's uh he's racing with the son of a, a guy he had a poster. I of, know. Yeah. And he feels old. <laughs> How old is Seth? <laughs> he's like 20, 26 or something. Yeah, I laughed at that. Yeah, because I, I don't think of uh Sepp Kuss as an old guy, but yeah, that's how much it's changed, right? Um, okay, I thought on the preview show we put that whole uh, Remco Enios rumor to bed. Apparently not. Well, yes, we did, uh, and I still think that's what's going to happen. But I heard a new potential scenario uh, 
And when I think about it, it actually makes sense. So there's this new rumor. Uh, first of all, I know that the, there's been discussions, meetings, and negotiations between the big guy of uh, Sudal Quickstep, the, the the majority owner. It's it's, it's a, a Czech guy called Zdenek Bakala, who's the majority shareholder of the team, and Radcliffe, Jim Radcliffe, the owner of Ineos, not just of the team, but of the company Ineos, which is huge. I mean, Jim Radcliffe is the richest person in the UK. Uh, there has been, these discussions have been going on. Um, and we've all thought, you know, well, you know, buying Remco out of the contract is super difficult. Um, buying the a, a part of the team quick step is also super difficult. But now I've heard a new theory, which actually could make sense, is that there, there's a potential, I mean, it's a thought, but if you think about it, it, it is possible, it is doable. Basically, Ineos buying the license of Team Sudal Quickstep. So Team Ineos, Ineos becomes the owner of the license. They have only 15 riders contracted right now. That's for a purpose. Actually, today I heard that it's confirmed the, a new four-year deal for Carlos Rodriguez with Ineos. So he's not going to Movistar. So there's a few things that make me doubt a little bit about the scenario, but I'm just going to lay it out. So Ineos buying the license of Sudal Quickstep. The team Sudal Quickstep with Remco Evenepoel, because obviously they want Remco, right? And they want probably people around Remco. So Ineos as a sponsor, they go away as the main sponsor. The team remains Sudal Quickstep. Ineos becomes the owner and they become a small co-sponsor. So Sudal Quickstep, Ineos. Like here, we see the move, little, little thing there, Ineos. Hmm. And Ineos sells their license because they the, the, the thing here is the license and who owns the license. And they sell the license, their own license, to a team which is looking to become World Tour. And there's a few candidates. The, the candidate that is rumored is uh, Sylvain Adams and Israel. They're not World Tour right now. But I personally think there's another candidate. The other candidate, and this is just my own thought, right? I have no information. This is just me thinking. But it would make sense that Team Q36.5, which is this second-level team uh, owned by a person or several people who are of the same level of Bakala and Radcliffe. This is a South African businessman who owns the brand. It's a clothing brand, Q36.5, but just recently also bought Pinarello, the brand, the, the, the bike brand. He bought the, brand, the, the Pinarello brand from Louis Vuitton. Louis Vuitton was owning Pinarello. So it kind of all starts to be a little puzzle. So what I could see, for example, is that either Israel or even more so Q36.5 buys the license of Ineos. Pinarello is moving to Q36.5. 
Q36.5 anyway, because the, the guy who owns Q36.5 also owns Pinarello now. And the owner of Ineos becomes the owner of Sudal Quickstep. The sponsors stay happy because they have Remco, they, they have Remco. And, you know, bit by bit, gradually, they go back to becoming Team Ineos dominantly over the years, but they built the whole team around uh, Remco Evenepoel. So, yeah. (laughs) There's going to be a a quiz later, by the way. Those of you listening, we're going to email everyone a quiz on what Johan just broke down. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds a a little far-fetched, but to me, the smoking gun on this, and I actually love the idea because now Jim Ratcliffe, and this is what they did with F1, like their partial owner of the Mercedes team, Ineos little sponsor on the Mercedes team. So they've done this in the past, but so if they they just kind of buy Quickstep, instead of buying Remco out of his contract and paying a ton of money, you buy Quickstep and then you kind of milk the existing sponsorships for whatever the contract says. You save money basically because you're not sponsoring the team yourself. You're using the contracts that Lefebvre already put in place with those sponsors getting a really, you know, class rider, probably the third best, fourth best Grand Tour rider in the world at the moment. Mm-hmm. And you get to sell your license to, and if you ever are owning a cycling team and your bike sponsor is owned by a man who also runs a cycling team, you're not going to get that. Con- that's not going to be a sponsor of your team any longer. Like mm-hmm. Pinarello's gone. They're out the door. So this, it gets them on specialized. I think it solves a lot of problems for Ineos and they only have 15 riders in their contract, I guess, 16 with, Carlos, and yeah, then I there's, hear there's there, a few things. There's more riders on this. There's a few things that if if I look at what Sudal Quickstep has done, then this theory doesn't really work anymore because they have signed new riders recently. And then you know, there's two. First of all, there's too many riders right now. If you put both of the teams together, but that's doable. I mean, I've been in yes. that situation. I've done I've done this in 2012. We merged Leopard and Radio Shack, and we had too many riders. And then basically, what you do is you you try to find a place for the six or seven or eight riders that are uh, that have contracts. You find a place, you get them in a team, and you pay their salary, right? Mm. Uh, so other teams get a free rider. Basically. Yeah, they get a free okay. rider. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and logically, those riders would be the riders that are on small contracts, right? You wouldn't give away an expensive rider to another team. The problem I see here is the staff. You know, that would be a real, real, real fuck up for the staff. Because I'm pretty sure that the staff is already fully, fully, fully committed, both at Ineos and at Suzak Quickstep. So that's that's a problem. And then you also have the the you know the additional uh vehicle, you know, buses, trucks. Um listen, for a guy like Jim Ratcliffe, that's not a problem, right? He, it's not a problem to have two buses there that sitting there, you know, he, he can sell them with a loss. Uh, that's, that's not the problem. I think what he really wants is the asset Remco Evenpool. And, uh, and, and that could be, you know, I just heard about this yesterday. Um, a, you know, where I said before, okay, Remco breaking his contract and going to Ineos, I said, it's not doable. This is doable. Not easy, but doable. And what does Patrick Lefebvre gain from this? Does he get a commission? He gets a huge check. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that would 
<laughs> and that's what I kept saying. Who's brokering the deal and who gets the big commission on these things, right? Yeah. So, and there are a lot of upwardly mobile teams at the moment. So in, on, in terms of extra staff, extra buses, like you have Tutor, you have Uno X, Q36.5. I think you could, un, I think you could probably just with the riders, I'm sure Tutor is going to want more staff next year. You could basically just pay their salaries to work on those teams. And then maybe they sign with those teams as those teams become better. I mean, there, there could be some interesting solutions. Well, there here. are too many guys that, that, you know, if you put two teams together, there are too many, there's too many people whether it's in writers and staff, there's too many people. So there's only place for so many people because there's one, there's going to be one team less. Right. Um, but you know, normally when guys like of that in, who play in that league make deals, they, they don't focus on the problems. They look for solutions. Mm -hmm. Johan, you know all the people around the globe that are into collecting cycling mem memorabilia. How baller would it be to have a bus? Put that in your backyard. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys know how much those cost? I just looked at AG2R's financials and they just bought two buses and a work truck. And it was 1.5 million euros for those three items. So I'd assume those buses are like half a million. 600, yeah, 600, yeah. Wow, <laughs> that's are, a lot of money. The buses are expensive, yeah. Yeah. Probably costs a lot to fill them up too. Like two <laughs> two euro a liter, my lord, that would cost a lot of money, <laughs> yeah. right? Wow, man, interesting stuff. You guys bring a lot to the table with this show. I love it. That's interesting stuff to break down. Uh, unless you have anything else, I'm going to throw out this Ventum trivia. Yeah, no, someone someone can win a brand new complete GS one. Uh, Spencer, you got to jump on my GS one when you were out in Aspen. You dug it, right? Yeah. No, great bike. I can't stop thinking about it. It's, <laughs> I, I don't think Dia wants us saying this, but the GS one, I honestly think is as good as my road bike. Like I, I, I didn't feel any slower. Like clearly, I guess with the trail tires, you're slower, but if you throw slicks on that thing. Yeah. You were on 42s or something like that, but uh, yeah, like it could be just as fast as a road bike. It's an yeah. amazing bike. Well, we're, uh, along with Ventum, son, my son, my son just got his Ventum, uh, NS one. Oh, that's right. And, uh, he says he feels like a different rider. He says, nice. like, I never knew that a bike could make that much difference. I mean, he was on a cyclocross bike with road wheels. I didn't tell him that, you know, <laughs> now, but, uh, but still he, he's, he's in love with his. Now, the frame quality is, is really impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So on the previous show, we threw out the first question just for fun. We'll give it the answer. That question was, Name the two riders who Johan directed to Vuelta GC wins. The answers were Roberto Haras in 2003 and Alberto Contador in 2008. Okay. Today's question, and you can take your time, look up the answer and email it in. You'll go into the drawing. Today's question is how many individual stages in the Vuelta did Johan win during his racing career? Hmm. All right. So look that up, email it in, send it to trivia at ventumracing.com, and you'll go in the drawing for uh, potentially winning a GS1 at the end of this Vuelta. That is it. Thank you so much, guys. This was a great show. I love all the work that you guys put into it behind the scenes. Really good stuff. Spencer, Johan, thank you. And we're going to be back on Monday, the rest day. Labor Day here in the U.S., so hopefully you have some leisure time to watch the whole stage and then join us. But uh, thank you, guys. I sure appreciate it. Thanks, Abby. Thanks, Spencer. Thanks.
Yeah, thanks for having me and thanks guys.